Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible complex specialty care that cares about your ROI. It's possible because we're already doing it all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello there and welcome to the Northern Agenda podcast. It is the podcast that proudly reports from outside of the Westminster bubble. From Accrington to Altrincham, Uddersfield to Ull, and from Yarm to York, we take a look at the stories that really matter to the North and from the North that you won't hear about from the national media in London. Oh yeah, have at your new statesman and telegraph. Usually, you hear the beautiful intonations of Northern Agenda editor Rob Parsons, but as you can probably tell from my elongated vowels, the chip on my shoulder, my unironic enjoyment of black pudding, I'm not Rob. This week, instead of clicking buttons with expert skill, me, Dan McLaughlin, the producer of this podcast, has jumped in front of the microphone, so do not adjust your set. We're going to explore the subject of the age-old biases against the North, and I am joined by two brilliant, insightful guests. It's a cracking one, this one. Jen Bolden, host of the wonderful Northern Voices podcast, whose PhD research looks at how the North-South divide has shaped what books have been published in the UK book industry. And there's also Dr Kate Fox, a writer, broadcaster, spoken word artist, neurodiversity advocate, whose fascinating book, Where There's Muck, There's Bras, takes on an entertaining and eye-opening journey through the lives of extraordinary women and unsung northern heroes. So, I start by asking Jen and Kate, and it'll be Jen first, about why these biases against Northern voices still exist after all this bloody time. Well, in the course of my research, what I've really found is that, as you say, these biases are historical. And it's not so much that like they still exist because people are still biased and like not being very nice to each other. Um, it seems to be more that it just hasn't changed because that's the way it's always been. Um, there's obviously been things that have happened in history, things like the miners' strike and the Industrial Revolution that have shifted that balance of power. But my research is very much focused on literature and the publishing industry and the stories we tell. And so I think because the majority of the publishing industry and the literary industry is based in the South, it's a lot harder for Northern voices to get through that and get through the gatekeepers and have their voices heard. So you're already at a disadvantage anyway in terms of that balance, because if you're not getting a certain quota of the population being able to tell their stories, then we're only hearing one kind of story. And I think that doesn't necessarily perpetuate that bias, but it definitely keeps it in existence. Absolutely. How about you, Kim? 
I think it's almost an unquestioned bias because it seems, I mean, it's based so much still on class, I think, and class perceptions. And it's almost more taboo and uh, to question class differentials, actually, despite the fact that as a country, um, the UK is obsessed with class. Um, and therefore, you know, someone can casually say, like when I go... Uh, or when I um, more often used to go down to Radio 4 to London to be on a radio show, the the shock in people's voices when I said, oh, I've just come down from either Yorkshire where I lived at the time or Newcastle now. Oh, you've, you've come down in a day and, and, and you live there as if writers couldn't possibly exist north of the Watford Gap. And, you know... I'd, I'd like to think, even on uh, Radio 4, if someone was saying, what, a, a person of colour who's here on, on Radio 4? You know, we, we kind of know that that's not OK. <laughs> but casual class and accent prejudice, actually, and regional prejudice, still OK, basically. You see, this is the thing I, I find we, often um, we describe sort of London and the South East as a different country, but London and the South East sees the North as a different country. It, it, it seems that it's a foreign land, that the, we are mysterious people that they don't, they quite understand, they, they don't quite understand. And with, with biases, I find as well is that, you know, like you say, you talk about class, that's a massive thing. And um, it goes into um, perceptions about education, perceptions um about uh lifestyle perceptions about uh your home life and the biggest um thing that sort of betrays our class is our accents and our dialects and have you found that when you for instance when you go down to radio four or when you're talking to publishers jen do, do you think that w- w- by having say a different accent different dialect you are then looked upon sometimes as uh, they judge you immediately, even though we might be really articulate in our words, but because we elongate our vowels and we drone on a bit, uh, you know, it's um, that, that that perception that fr- from the very start you're at a disadvantage because of um, prejudices about the way that you talk, essentially. Yeah, for sure. When I went, I went down to London to do my master's after I'd done my undergrad at Edinburgh University, and I won't say which university I was at. I mean, it's pretty widely known. Actually, do you know what? It doesn't matter. I was at City University. And the majority of people on that course, they were all very, very lovely. But they're all just like, well, all but a few of them sort of treated me very differently because as soon as I opened my mouth, it's almost like they thought I was thick. You know, I got a lot of people when I said that I played in a brass band being like, oh, brass band, that's hilarious. You know, as if it was like, oh, of course, you're from the north. Of course, you play in a brass band. Um, And I've certainly heard over the course of my research from other authors and other writers who have tried to, and other publishers, actually, who have tried to um, make their way in the industry, that there is this unconscious bias really does affect them. And they've faced those kind of stereotypes, not because people are being nasty and because they want to be horrible to them, but just because that's the way it's always been. And it's just the expectation that if you're Northern, then you're working class. And if you're Northern and working class, then you're uneducated and how could you possibly write a book? And that's exactly the same reason why Northern dialect on the page, which is my specific area of research, um, is really struggling 
people are really struggling to get that kind of literature published because there's the perception of, well, we don't want to hear somebody talk it. Why would we want to read it? It's really interesting that um, there was a study recently that um, sort of old school, say, Lancashire accents are dying out. I'm from Akron's and Blackburn way, and they say Blackburn's probably the last one that's sort of going to stick around. And it's because... they might be dying out because people make conscious effort to maybe try and hide it possibly um I can't I'm I'm stuck with it yeah I always say book (laughs) instead of book and then I feel like no do you know what I'm sticking with book I um found that and I I tend to exaggerate my accent I'm a performer I'm a stand-up poet and unconsciously I think um because my accent is not a pure accent if it was this would just be purely Bradford um whereas I've lived in Newcastle on and off over the last 20 years I seem to have northeast vowels they've migrated so maybe if I'd moved south would would my accent have lessened actually I don't think so because I think I would have been doing the thing I've unconsciously been doing of increasing it. But there's academic research um, on academics. In every instance of the northern academics, or sorry, academics with a regional accent that they looked at, um, the women had on purpose lost their regional accent and then being able to progress up the academic ladder. Um, And the men were more likely to have kept it and some had done what I have unusually it turns out for a woman done um and emphasized it a bit more and it's that um I mean it's literally it's a prejudice that's rooted in the body isn't it because your voice is part of your body um again in a similar way and so I'm not saying it's the same thing it is not the same as um racism but actually um you know racism is often embodied it's about the color of your skin often. Um, as part of my PhD research, I analysed uh, 260 reviews of comedians divided into North and South, divided into having an accent, not having an accent. And the reviews, the newspaper reviews mentioned the voices and bodies of the comedians with accents, Northern accents and Cockney accents, actually. So any associated as working class and then would do a more neutral, like, say, uh, Russell Howard from the South, even though he's from Bristol and has a slightly detectable Bristol accent, they didn't mention his voice, one worth mentioning, because it's sort of voice neutral and body neutral. And when I say they mentioned bodies, they would talk about, like, if a Northern comedian was bigger, they'd feel okay to say, oh, this, you know, oh, the fat, jolly uh, comedian type thing. Whereas he wouldn't do it, even if it was a bigger bodied because <laughs> a comedian with a neutral southern middle class accent so it's really like it's super super ingrained and quite physical it's it's really interesting I find because um obviously uh, the day job is journalism but I, I'm a performer as well I'm a stand-up poet as well and um when I first started tra- training journalism I was told at the very start you're not going to read news at 10 with this. And my accent in journalism is a disadvantage. But what I find when I do the comedy and when I do the poetry, actually the accent sometimes is an advantage. But maybe because I'm when I'm on stage, I exaggerate. Am I playing to the stereotypes that the audience have already got? Am I playing the part that they 
have already deemed um, to be the, 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 the northern stereotype, I suppose. And it's interesting as well that the, um, when we talk about when we put on the, the sort of the professional voice that we do as well, I find and I, um, that it's almost a raise in our culture, our heritage, because our accent is a link to our history, particularly the words that we say, the imagery that we invoke. And I'm concerned that we're going to lose a lot of our heritage because we're trying to hide our voices, particularly. Yeah, I feel like stories and literature are going to be one key way to preserve that heritage. Um, you said, well, you said, Dan, you know, are you maybe playing up to the stereotypes by exaggerating your accent in performance? And for me, that, uh, yes, I would say, yes, you are in one way. And then you're also subverting them because you're a stand-up poet. I mean, Bernard Manning wasn't a stand-up poet, was he? Um, there's something about poetry as a form that's already being a little bit subverted by being spoken in a northern accent. And then I'm guessing that the milieu that you usually work in and the fact that you're a journalist is also playing with those perceptions. So it's a bit like, oh, on the one hand, we have this accent doing this and we expect it to be saying this, but it's saying this other thing. Well, and I think in that kind of playful area, I mean, this is how I comfort myself anyway, when I sometimes think I'm being a professional northerner and hired to be a professional northerner. But then I'll be like, anyway, when I did my PhD which generally I avoid mentioning in conversation because it's still a thing of, oh, you mustn't be too big for your boots. You don't want to make yourself look accidentally clever, uh, which is a prejudice that I encounter in the North um, and in many settings. So, yes, digging our own graves there. Um, so it feels really complicated. And I agree. I think I think there is an erasure of history and tradition and that comes in the erasure of accents. I'm loving hearing your real proper Lancashire vowels. It's really very satisfying and feels quite rare. But actually, the erasure of our history is generally an erasure of the trauma that um, mainly working class areas have suffered uh, over the course of deindustrialization and um, labour exploitation just to sound really Marxist for a minute. Um, that's the bit that's erased, actually, routinely. And I don't think our voices have that much to do with it, which I, is why I think maybe Jen's research, actually, into Northern stories and how they're told on the page might hold the key, really. Yeah, I think there's such an important connection between voice and heritage. Um, I'm not sure that we are particularly losing it because I have seen a lot of changes being made, both in the publishing industry recently and in things like TV, where you've got more regional accents on the screen. And I think that's really powerful. And I think it's really nice as well. Um, obviously, I run my own podcast and I try and have as many northern voices on there as possible. And by that, I don't necessarily mean people who have an accent. I mean, people who are writing from the north or writing about the north or even just come from there. And like their voice isn't necessarily a literal voice. It's just them being able to speak out and tell us what they're doing and how they're being creative. And I, I do think they're putting stories on the page and personally, I think putting Northern dialect and all various kinds of forms of dialect on the page is super important for preserving that heritage as well. Because, you know, if it's not written down and we do lose it, then how are we going to know how to get it back again? Or how are we going to have that reminder of of what it was like? Um, 
so I do think that, yeah, dialect is hugely important in literature because I don't see how we can authentically tell our stories in a voice that's not our own. And by that, I mean standard English, because that's not my voice. I don't talk in standard English. So why would I tell a story that way? There's a poetry night in Manchester called Switchblade where you read out someone else's poem and then you do your, your own set and then someone else reads out one of yours. And um, when it comes to, to, to my stuff, it's tailored to my voice. And when you hear someone else do it, particularly someone who isn't from the region, it sounds all a bit wrong because it's my story, but also it's written... To, to my voice as well. Um, Jen, what sort of stories do you uh, have you heard with the podcast and your research? Um, like say, it's not just about the, 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 the tone of the voice and the dialect of the voice, but it's about the, the storytelling as well. What's, what have been some of the highlights for you that you've heard? I think the biggest highlight for me running the podcast has been seeing that even though you're from the North, doesn't necessarily mean you're going to write a story set in the North and you're not going to write a story with Northern characters. And it's just, I don't, I don't see why Northern writers have to be defined by the fact that they're Northern. Um, and they're also very much like kicking back against the idea that Northern means working class. So I've had people who've written like rom-coms set in America um, with, you know, there's been a hint of Northernness in there, but it's very much not set in the North. Um, we've had people who have written things set in the north. We've had crime writers. Um, I've had people working in publishing, and that's been really eye-opening as well to know that it's not just the writers who face bias; it's also the people who work in the industry. And you know, there's the assumption that they're not going to have anything useful to contribute, or the assumption that a northern-based publisher will only publish northern books, and that's not how it works. You know, there's some absolute crackers out there that have come from all over the country being published by little independent publishers in the north and yeah I do think um I do think it's so important that we think about voice not necessarily as a literal term but as something a little bit bigger than that and how about you Kate obviously you've got an amazing book out um so I'm giving you the shameless plug now as well um what's what's been sort of your highlights through, through the research you've done with that also your PhD as well well, I think maybe the there's a paradox that you've, I think you've both just embodied because Jen said you don't have to be defined by the fact that you're Northern as a Northern writer. But then, as you said, there's the thing of playing up to the stereotypes and there's this interesting middle ground of, yeah, well, you don't have to be defined by the fact you're Northern, but in, in which case, why is it a Northern story or Northern voice? Are we only talking about the fact that geographically you're quite far from the centres of power um and um so the biggest I don't know <laughs> biggest highlight not really highlight from my PhD research was I came up with this term the northernness effect which applied I applied it to comedians careers and basically um on the one hand you have um in certain settings, more cultural capital. If you are, if you are visibly and audibly and noticeably northern, and on the other hand, in certain settings, in other settings where it's handier to have, um, let's say, more middle class cultural capital, um, then you have less. Um, you will probably earn less as a comedian if you have. Um, the more of a northern accent you've got, which feels like a whoa, that can't be true because everyone knows northern people are funnier. Well happen although not obviously 
all subjective. Um, but you, you will earn less and you won't win prizes as much. You absolutely will not win prizes. And that won't, it won't matter what your accent is or isn't, unless no one notices at all that you're Northern. I love, um, do you know Kieran Hodgson, the comedian and writer? For me, he's so interesting because he is actually performing a comedic Northern lower middle classness. And I think the lower middle classness, that bit where you're in between, you're like, oh, well, I'm not I'm not quite fitting in with the working class stereotypes here. On the other hand, if I go to somewhere like Oxford University, I'm a fish out of water. Um, you know, that it's that middle place that Alan Bennett occupies, actually. Um that middle place, that's the sweet spot. That's the interesting place. And I don't want to massively big up Morrissey at the moment because he's turned into a complete idiot. But um, Morrissey is also occupying that middle place. And I don't know if, Jen, if that middle place is important um, in your research, but for me, that that became, you know, the people who were in between. Ted Hughes going from a Mythamroid newsagent's uh, son to Poet Laureate and always keeping this interesting in-between place. It's an interesting concept, and I'll be honest, it's not one that I've really looked at too in-depth, but I do know what you mean, simply because my PhD is a creative writing PhD, so I don't have an awful lot of room in my exegesis, which is like my mini thesis, to to go too in depth. I honestly have had so much feedback from like examiners when I've done my little milestones as part of that PhD process where they've been like, you could do a whole thesis on this and scrap the novel. Um, so I think there's an awful lot to unpack and I don't think it's going to be anything that we can sort of remedy any kind soon. But I do know what you mean about feeling like you have to find that spot that still allows you to be Northern, but also allows you to progress and to sort of book those stereotypes. It's a really hard line to walk. I find that um, a lot of times, because you are Northern, we use that term Northern, but we have so many different identities within that huge geographical area. Like, it's um, when you try to explain to um, some, like some of my American friends that the accent changes within five minutes down the road. We're seeing it as this homogenesis of, of the North, but actually it's split between Lancashire, Liverpool, Newcastle, Hull, Yorkshire. You know, Yorkshire's the biggest county in in the country, but it's seen as, you've seen as from Yorkshire, but actually there's little identities within that. So you, you, you're bundled within that group identity, even though you've got those specific heritages and identities within that. Yeah, I had to explain a similar thing to my husband because we went. I took him over to the UK for Christmas and I, he was like, your mum talks differently to the way you talk and your dad talks a little bit differently and your sister definitely talks differently. And I'm like, well, we've all had very different experiences and just because we do have that sort of base Northern accent, it totally varies. It varies within families. It varies within villages. Like imagine in the Northeast, you've got like Geordies, you've got Mackhams, you've got Pityakas, you've got Monkey Hangers, if we're going to get into that one, you know, and it's, you can't tar us all with the same Northern brush. It's, and I think it's really positive to vocalize those identities through trying to be a bit proud of your accent and 
hanging on to that heritage, but also showing it for me on the page. You know, I'd love to see like a Macken book and a Geordie book and see the differences in those. And then on the other hand, a thing that I find frustrating, so there's the ex- the beautiful um, diversity of these different Northern identities and accents, but I think it also, when it becomes about fixing those identities, it hampers us from having a Northern identity that speaks with a collective voice. And, you know, I will, if I'm, as an example, uh, maybe not a typical life example, but if I'm at a literature festival in Edinburgh, you know, the Northern writers, we will find each other at the party. We will. And we'll be like, we're Northern together. Oh, look at all this lot. Ooh, aren't they a bit weird with their canopies? And that will happen. And in that moment, we're Northern, even though one of us is from Lancashire, one's from the Northeast, one's from Yorkshire. Get us back to our respective corners of the North. And we're like, well, I'm, I'm not Northern. I'm mainly from Yorkshire. I'm a Geordie. Don't, you know. And if if we did have, because the, the mayors. Basically, the the northern mayors are the first attempt that there has been for a very long time, the metro mayors um, and Andy Burnham, to have a collective northern voice. I might be wrong, but I don't think they're massively interested in the minutiae of how northern prejudice manifests. Otherwise, one of the things they could do as a collective is address issues of accent prejudice, issues of... um, publishing difficulty. I know Tracy Brabin, the West Yorkshire mayor, is interested in the cultural stuff. Is she particularly aware of how this prejudice, the northern prejudice, is actually transmitted? I don't think so. Maybe they'll listen to this podcast and have a revelation and think more carefully and more strategically and more deeply about what a collective northern voice looks like. I think as well, it's it's interesting that you mentioned that. Sometimes I I think with the, with the Northern Voice, not just again, it's not just our literal voice, but the way that we write, the way that we publish, the way that we perform, we, we're seen as radical, and we're seen as radical because of our history, whether it's the Industrial Revolution, workers' rights, etc. And we're also seen with a bit of a chip on the shoulder as well, which is probably not wrong either. Do you think? And this is both. For, for a question for both of you from your different perspectives, does that hold us back or is that an advantage to, to be seen as that radical voice? Um, like like you said earlier, Jen, you know, Northern writers aren't just going to write about the North. You could be writing about New York State, but, it, but it, you might be writing about outer space. You might be writing Doctor Who, for instance, but you're still seen as a Northern writer even though you're writing Doctor Who. Um, do you think that Torin as, as a radical voice is an advantage or a disadvantage? We'll start with you, Jen, on that one. Honestly, I think we're only considered radical because we're doing something that goes against the standard that has that we have been told is what we should be doing. So we should be talking in received pronunciation and we should be writing in standard English. We should be using a comma here and we should be using a full stop here. Yes, the rules have been made up in English language for a reason and it's so that people can read easily and things are very clear. But I don't think there's anything radical at all about playing with that because that is not reality. If you're trying to represent real people in real places, then you need to be doing something that I guess would be considered radical, which in actual fact just means that you're doing something different. 
it's really interesting to hear you say that a northern voice is in itself considered radical and I'm like oh of course and actually there is a, a radical history isn't there and I, I failed to pick up on the opportunity for a shameless plug about my book where there's muck there's bras true stories of northern women published by Harper North which is Harper Collins with a little office in Manchester um, um, and in that I talk about you know radical women the suffragettes starting off in Manchester or um, the independent Labour Party um, and the fracking nanas more contemporarily of Preston but at the same time just to quote Foucault as you do um, where there is power there is resistance so perhaps our radical power in being different from the standard is often being subtly fought against in a subtle culture war because how often is northern voiceness turned into something cosy oh look at the coziness of alan bennett or oh cosy lovely northern vowels they make me think of a warm fire and some crumpets and a whippet so maybe we should own our perceived radicalness more actually andy burnham i mean look at andy burnham bless him total not very radical politician really when he was a blairite but all of a sudden oh he's a threat to the establishment because he's standing outside somewhere in manchester wearing an anorak um so it's interesting depends on the context doesn't it really do you think the biases that um northerners face do, do you think is it the biases worse for northern women compared to northern men oh that's interesting um, I have talked to a lot of female writers and we have talked about whether they feel like they're at a double disadvantage being both a woman trying to get something published and um, and being a northerner. I can't say that I've found anything conclusive. Um, I do feel that rather than it being a case of, oh, you're a woman and you're northern, so God, it must be hard for you. You're not fighting those battles together. You're fighting them separately. So you're fighting the battles that come with being a woman because that's just the way life is. You're already at a disadvantage anyway. Um, but then you've also got this added pressure that is completely separate that you are Northern and we're not in power, are we? I mean, we're not in any way in terms of having a voice, in terms of our creative output, in terms of the way people view us and respect us. We just we don't have that power. So I guess, yeah, maybe we are being a little bit radical in the sense that we are questioning why we don't have equal access to that power. Yeah, and, I, and actually I was looking quite often at specifically northern female comedians and definitely the double whammy of, well, there's the gender pay gap and then there is the you are far from the southern centres of power so you are going to earn less because it's harder for you to catch the attention of um, media gatekeepers. So that definitely. Um, and, and I think also when, um, when northern women... So I'm going to talk about comedians again. Sophie Willen, whose show Alma's Not Normal was a huge hit um, on the BBC in the last couple of years. I think there's a new series coming. I would say she's not recognised quite for the depth of her radicality, both in terms of as a writer, she's an incredible writer, um, but also in what, how she's changing perceptions of what a Northern woman can be. And on the one hand, seeming to use some of that camp northern femininity that, 
you see in Coronation Street's matriarchs, I think it's fair to say Pat Phoenix and Bet Lynch were super camp. Um, and, and Sophie Willen's character is using that campness, but actually she's subverting it. She's, you know, she's a sex worker. She's, and there's this whole interesting thing of what a woman is for. She's not just there to reproduce. She's not just, it's, it's super interesting. But again, I, I just, there, there should be a bit more theses being written on that. And she'll just, I think, be... Yeah. Is someone at Oxbridge going to be studying the power of what she's doing? Um, no. No, they're not. Exactly, exactly. Finally, to, um, the final question to ask uh, both of you is, um, also we've talked a lot about biases, um, whether it's in literature, whether it's in performance or whether it's in academia. Um what can we do to combat them? That's a big question, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. It is. I mean, look, it goes back so far. Like my favourite anecdote is, you know, all of this stems, the stereotypes stem from Roman times when they divided the country into three parts. So you had like Britannia superior in the south because it was closer to Rome. And then you had Britannia inferior in the north because it was further away. And then you had Britannia barbara, which means like foreign or strange. It doesn't mean barbaric over Hadrian's Wall. Um, and Although, like, they, those words didn't actually mean what we think they mean, there were still those connotations of, well, it's further away from Rome, so therefore it's not as good. Um, so I think in terms of changing those biases, we're going to be on for a long while. But the easiest way that I think we can change biases when it comes to seeing more Northern voices in stories and more Northern books being published is greater accessibility. Publishers need to get their asses out of the South, beg your pardon, um, and get out into the regions and actually talk to people and find writers. It is not our job to come to you. It is also our not job to not our job to bring this fight. You know, it it should be something that the whole country is addressing and the whole industry is addressing, particularly from a literary point of view. Not something that Northerners have to be like, come on, you need to pay attention to us. People who are working in London and publishers who are based in London need to start being active instead of reactive. Um, yeah, I agree with every word of what Jen said. And and I feel like she, she kind of puts it better and more clearly than I will manage to, because I want to say it's both it's structural issues about structural inequality, everything from where Arts Council money goes to actually, of course, really at a deep level where education money goes and is spent where transport money is spent it's those basic things which still show a massive structural gap between north and south in this country bigger than for any other country in europe actually the gap um which then leads on to these cultural uh gaps and disparities even our death rate is significantly higher so that that's like the headline stuff that you know if that if that is addressed that would help and then it's this there's more subtle stuff underneath. I would love to hear more people talk explicitly about accent prejudice, about what a northern solidarity might look like, um, about how there's even weird bodily prejudice towards northern people. And I would love, so I'm very encouraged to see schemes that address um, working class representation. And it is a bit of a trend and a, a bit of a performative thing. Working class people come forth now and get your cultural money. 
And for me, first of all, I was certainly, I was working class, but I, it was absolutely taboo in the 80s and 90s to think of yourself as working class. So if I hadn't done a PhD on this stuff, for starters, I wouldn't recognise myself. Uh, so I wouldn't be able to hear this call. Second of all, probably realistically now, I'm at least lower middle class. And I would, and I know this is so unfashionable. And it's interesting, it's not really come up for you, Jen, in, in what you're looking at. But there is something about those people in between the classes, the in-betweeners, they are actually, honestly, where revolution and change lies. Couldn't cultural organisations recognise them? And it doesn't look cool to go, lower middle class people, please come forth with your confused identity. But actually, it's them. It's us. I think it's because it's so hard to define class, isn't it? It's so hard. Like, I don't consider myself economically working class. Like, we're quite comfortable. I work for a university. My husband's a mad scientist, so he he has a nine-to-five. He has a decent job. But where I come from and my culture and my heritage, I still play in a brass band, and I still talk the way I talk, and I I still, you know, go to things like Durham Miners Gala and Whit Friday marches and stuff like that. So culturally, I still feel like I'm working class, and I think it's so difficult to work within these definitions that it would just be easier if people would just put all of those labels aside and just take people and stories for what they are. We're just bloody obsessed with class, aren't we? We need to get over it. Um, anyway, if, if it's been brilliant chatting to both of you. Just remind us, uh, if you want to check out more of your work, if you want to check out more of voices and stories, where can we find it? So for me, um, my website's katefox.co.uk. Definitely a good starting point is where there's muck, there's bras. True stories of amazing women of the North by Harper North. Oh, and I've got a Substack newsletter now, but that's about neurodiversity. Whole different thing. Fantastic. How about you, Jen? Um, so my Northern Voices podcast is on SoundCloud, so you can search for it on there. Um, if you want to know more about my PhD research and about me in general, my website's www jen-boden.com um i do also edit sort of works of fiction and um northern dialect fiction and things like that so um yeah have it have a look and i'm on twitter quite regularly even though i really wish i wasn't um at jenboden12 on there and on instagram as well usually shouting about northern books and other fun things fantastic thank you very much Thank you for listening to the Northern Agenda podcast. And don't forget, you can subscribe to our daily newsletter at thenorthernagenda.co.uk. It's more important than ever for Northern voices to be heard. The Northern Agenda is a laudable production for Reach. It's presented by me, Rob Parsons, and it's produced by Daniel J. McLaughlin. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to The Northern Agenda wherever you listen to your podcasts, including Apple and Spotify. Also, check out the other laudable podcasts, See you next week. Bye-bye.